My name is Anne Marie and I'm an alcoholic. This is an open meeting of the Atlanta Group of Alcoholics Anonymous and all are welcome to attend. We hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and or understanding. The format of tonight's meeting is two 10-minute speakers. The first of which will speak on the separate tradition followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10 minutes to share on the seven traditions is Carly. Hi, I'm Carly, I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me okay? Is this coming through? Okay. Um, or not? Yep. Okay, great. Um, I am really grateful to be here. Thanks, uh, everybody who does service on this meeting, both in person and online. This is a fun uh, exception for us. Um, and grateful for Zoom to be able to connect all of us tonight, even when the church is closed. Um, I got sober um, December 16th of 2013. Nicole D is my sponsor, and um, on Step 9 to 12 in the Atlantic Group is home. Um, so tonight I've been asked um, to speak on the seventh tradition, um, which is a pretty popular one. We say it pretty much in every meeting, so you might know which one I'm talking about. And thanks, Jeff, for asking me to speak. So first I'm going to kick off with the long form because I know that's very important. Okay, so. Uh, tradition 7. AA groups themselves ought to be fully self-supported. I'm sorry, fully supported by the voluntary contributions of their own members. We think that each group should soon achieve this ideal, that any public solicitation of funds using the name of Alcoholics Anonymous is highly dangerous, whether by groups, clubs, hospitals, or other outside agencies, that acceptance of large gifts from any source or contributions carrying any obligation whatever is unwise. Then, too, we view with much concern those AA treasuries which continue beyond prudent reserves to accumulate funds for no stated AA purpose. Experience has often warned us that nothing can so surely destroy our spiritual heritage as feudal disputes over property, money, and authority. Okay, great. So that was the long form. Um, and the, like, like regular form um, is, like, Oh my God, self-supporting through contributions. We're <laughs> self-supporting through contributions. I've only been studying this for a week, I should probably know. Um, but really there's like two parts of this tradition that I wanted to talk about tonight and from like the research that I was doing to prepare. But um, essentially it kind of breaks down into these two categories of that were self-supporting. Um, you know, just for our own group, we, you know, don't look for anything, um, you know, other than from ourselves. And then the other part of it is the rejecting outside contributions. Um, and so those two things together, I think, make this, I don't know any other organization, enterprise, group of people, whatever you want to call us, um, that does that. Uh, and I think it's pretty, uh, like, unique. And I honestly think it was kind of, like, divinely inspired, not to be hokey about it, but it really does sort of defy for me, logic as somebody who likes money and uh, always wants more of it and lives in a lot of fear of financial insecurity for no particular reason. Um, so one thing I wanted to say about the first part of the tradition is um, it makes it clear that the responsibility for the, each local group extends to the members themselves as it passes the basket for the contributions, pay rent, and maintain its literature library. So. At this meeting, both in person and online, we pass a basket. Um, online, we you know virtually have like Venmo now, which uh, is such a great addition, in my opinion, to be able to uh, make sure that we're you know getting people to contribute in any way that they can electronically. We're having cash on them. Um, you know, sometimes you hear in meetings we have no dues or fees, but we do have expenses, and that's true. Like the reality is that the church doesn't pay for itself for us to have a space to meet. The literature that we bring to jails and institutions or the literature that we have ready for the newcomer when they arrive um you know isn't something that grows on trees and so those types of services need to be funded from somewhere and so um you know for us it's really important that we're i'm making sure that i'm being as generous as i can given you know what a is given to me and also because i mean it's no secret that a lot of us come here at rock bottom and this is the last house on the block. And so if I'm able to contribute in a way that now, you know, over nine years later, I, I have a pretty comfortable, knock on wood, boring life, and I'm not at rock bottom. And so I do have the capability to, you know, put in an extra dollar or two for somebody who is at rock bottom and does need me to stay open, like I do, because we really do rely on each other um, as a lead program. 
Um, I've also heard it said we need you more than we need your money, and that's also true. Um, you know, if you are coming here and you're new, welcome. Um, this tradition is really talking about trying to keep money outside of like the spiritual part of this program, and the most important thing is that we're able to carry the message to the newcomer uh, who still suffers, and so that's exactly why we're here. So just want to make sure you know that this is not the talk um, about money. Uh, being involved in AI, rest assured, it really is um, as made as minimally involved as possible um, by design. Um, the policy I actually read that they came up with, thank you, Olga, I just saw the timing, um, amazing. Uh, okay, so the policy that I re researched about what they came up with at the time, so if you go back to like early days of AI, because our traditions are really born out of our experience, the steps are for the individual and then the traditions are for the group and making sure that we protect the group essentially from the individual. Um, and so back in the day, like the 1940s, I think it was, they um, came up with a policy of corporate poverty and basically having only enough money to meet their expenses with a prudent reserve for emergencies. And that's, I've had the opportunity based on a couple of service positions at my home group, at this home group to attend steering committee meetings. And I've been privy to sort of the finances at, you know, these types of meetings where we're going through sort of the treasury report line by line and everything that's going on and like the amount of work that goes into everything behind the scenes to run a group this large and how many service commitments there are for people who, you know, it's a semi part-time, full-time job to like keep this thing running smoothly and it's it's pretty in impressive. Um, so the treasury report and the treasurer are definitely not doing that for their health or uh, because it's easy. Like we're deliberately trying to make sure that we're supporting what it is that we need the support to keep the doors open and to help the next person. But basically beyond that, like we're supporting our general service organization, New York Intergroup. That's something that we typically say when we read the blurb of the meeting about passing the basket is how, um, you know, even if we're not meeting in person necessarily for Zoom meetings, we are support supporting um, the local meeting spaces that we uh, typically meet in for the Atlanta group, as well as our, uh, the general service organization and larger AA entities um, to make sure that we're giving back at a level beyond just our home group. Um, so one thing I wanted to do with the time I have left is there is a um, checklist that I found really effective when I was preparing for this and a couple of people suggested it um, for making sure that I'm sort of living into this and I just wanted to share this with the group because I think it's a really helpful litmus test. And so the first question is, honestly, do I now, honestly now, do I do all I can to help AA my group, my central office, my GSO remain self-supporting. Could I put a little more in the basket on behalf of the new guy who can't afford it yet? How generous was I when I was tanked in a bar room? Um, I could definitely be putting in more. I could definitely not forget to Venmo. Like I absolutely should be putting in more than I am. Two to three dollars nine years ago is, you know, a joke compared to probably the amount of money I could be putting in to what hey get back to me that I'm not going to notice the difference. Not that it needs to be some like grandiose like overture that's not the point either um but uh i definitely was generous when i was hanging in bar rooms one time i accidentally put my pin code into a taxi um and tipped them generously uh to the tune of four figures so yeah i definitely um don't you know skimp when i'm not here so i can pony up um the second question should the grapevine sell advertising space to book publishers and drug companies so it could make a big profit and become a bigger magazine in full color at a cheaper price per copy so i love this question because i'm actually in advertising sales for a living and my immediate reaction is like chef's kiss like why didn't i think of this sooner we could be rolling in it and it's like that's actually exactly what we're trying not to do and the reason that we're not doing that is exactly like because of what i do for a living it's the fact is, is that when you are when someone else is paying the bills then they're in charge right it's no longer about our decisions for ourselves um you know you're beholden to that client and you know we don't want to the, the i wrote down the phrase because i always forget it whoever paid the piper was apt to call the tune um so we just want to be calling your own selves and not feeling like we need to be catering to you know whoever bought the biggest centerfold in the grapevine or whoever is like funding the cups at the meeting or the cookies at the meeting or whatever it's like not about that um thanks all i just saw that um Okay, so I'm going to read the rest of these because um, my anecdotes are nearly as important as the checklist. Let me go to that. Number three, if GSO, GSO runs short of funds some year, wouldn't it be okay to let the government subsidize AA groups and hospitals and prisons? Similar story. We probably don't need to have the government involved in this. 
or it's more important to get a big uh, a collection from a few people or a smaller collection in which more members contribute. I think that the answer is less from more people because like the group participation, but I'll ask my sponsor after this. Five, is a group treasurer's report on important AA business? How does the treasurer feel about it? It is very important, uh, perhaps the most important, and the treasurers of this group definitely take it seriously, so thank you for your service. And six, how important is my recovery? And my recovery is the feeling of self-respect rather than the feeling of being always under obligation for charity received. So I'll leave you with the idea that, you know, we come here probably not feeling super dignified and this tradition is rooted in a lot of ways in humility and dignity. Um, thanks, Olga. And so if I'm giving more than I take, if I don't have any money, can I put a chair away? Um, can I shake a hand with a newcomer? Can I give somebody my number? There are always ways that I can be self-supporting, um, even if it doesn't come to, you know, passing the basket and putting money in the basket. Um, so thanks for letting me share. Our second 10-minute speaker is Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for asking me to speak. It's a real honor and privilege to be here. Um, never thought in a million years I'd have the opportunity to uh, share my experience, strength, and hope uh, with AG. I got sober in this group, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's truly an honor to be here. Um, so I guess to, to kick things off, um, my sobriety date is May 28, 2019. Uh, I just celebrated four years. Uh, it's definitely been a bumpy, you know, sort of uh, path of sobriety, um, you know, but it's truly been a miracle. Um, I, I started drinking when I was 14. Uh, growing up, I was a very disconnected, alien, afraid child. Uh, I was kind of a drifter. I had a bunch of different friends. I would maneuver across different friends friend groups, I was an athlete, and I sort of hid within different sports teams, but I was in and out, the principal's office, uh, got suspended, expelled for, from a few schools, um, and when I discovered alcohol, um, a lot of these sort of traits and tendencies started to go away, I was able to you know, talk to girls without any anxiety. I wasn't shy anymore. I was hanging out with a cool, you know, group. Um, I didn't drink a lot in high school, but, you know, one thing I noticed was whenever I was at a party, I was the guy that, you know, would rummage through, like, empty cans and empty cases and be like, we can't be out of beer. We can't, like, and I was just always kind of looking for more and more. Um I moved to New York City to go to college. Um, I wanted to work in finance, and you know, as soon as I got here, I just was off straight to the races. And for about like ten years, I, uh, you know, so long as I had good grades, um, you know, had good jobs, made good money, sort of had it together, I didn't really think I had a problem. Um, and was able to sort of piece things together and just until I wasn't. Um, and so, you know, for a good, you know, almost a decade until I came into this program, um, I just constantly wondered why, like, things were falling out of the sky around, like, why life was just so unfair to me. Um, I... You know, all the things that everyone hears in the rooms, I've, I've gone through, you know, being institutionalized, um, you know, getting into fights, getting fired, um, running into really serious problems with family, taking myself to the hospital, others taking me to the hospital. Like, that's definitely a big part of my story, but... You know, what it comes down to for me versus the, you know, versus the regular drinker is, you know, for me, it's less and less, you know, this addiction to drinking as it is this addiction to self and this addiction to like poor thinking. I don't do things, I don't follow direction very well. I don't do things with grace. And, you know, for the, for the entire part of my life, um, I just, I, I, I'm very impulsive and I do things with, without a lack of grace. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I never had enough Christmas presents. I, 
never did well enough on the ball field. I didn't have good enough grades. Like there was always something that wasn't good enough for me. And as I got older, all of the things that I familiarized myself with in my life, friends, jobs, people I dated, the things that I did, all revolved around my drinking. The choices in my life uh, were around my preference to drink. Um, and so for like a good, you know, call it five years after I graduated, I, even with the knowledge that drugs and alcohol, you know, would one day kill me, I still continued to do it under the guise of like, this time will be different. And it never, ever was. Um, and so I just, I kept doing it until I got to this point in my life where it just didn't work anymore. And then I ended up on the steps of AA, AG. Um, I went to my first meeting and I started working the steps. And for a good year that I was able to put together, my sobriety was, it was very difficult in, in early sobriety. I couldn't live with a drink, but I couldn't live without it. Um, and like life became just so painful, um, and unmanageable. I needed some form of relief around it. I didn't believe deep down to my bones that I was an alcoholic and that, you know, I was powerless over that first drink. And so sure enough, like life just wasn't working and I just ended up just going back out. And, um, when I did that, I lost my job, lost my apartment, what little money I had left, I lost. Um, and my sponsor at the time said, Hey, there's this facility. They have a bed. You don't have anything else going on. You should go for it. And, um, and that's what I did. That was May 28th, 2019. Um, I had my, what was at the time, my, you know, what I thought was going to be my last drink. And, uh, and I checked into the facility you know, and then I started to, like, really do the work. I I had, you know, what we call a spiritual experience. Um, and all of a sudden, like, all, I, I started to unpack all of these things within myself to tear apart this, like, narrative that I had built my entire life um, that was destructive and started to have hope. And I got a sponsor and you know it was it was a terrific experience it was very hard um you know i had i had worked in really good jobs i had um had a degree and uh i was living in this like sober halfway house and i had to text people where i was going um I had to like do things on command. I had to scrub bathrooms. I was working at a restaurant. I had to take the bus in the metro because I wasn't allowed to have a car. And it was like a terrible experience, but at the time it was like super humbling. It was exactly what I needed. And from there, like life just started to work again. The moment that I put aside everything that I thought I knew about life um, and started working this program and this, this spiritual aspect of it was very difficult. Um, but my faith in my sponsor and my faith in the program, um, is what kept me going. I said, all right, it, it works for my sponsor. Um, he's telling me to do something. The knowledge that I have right now, is nothing because things have just not worked out when I do it my way. So I'm just going to do what he tells me to do. Um, so I started going to meetings every day. I started doing the step work. And, like, all of a sudden, like, things started to work. Um, and so, like it says uh, in the big book, like Bill says, for us, the process of gaining a new perspective was unbelievably painful. And so, like, reconstructing all of these things that I thought I knew about life um, and this process was um, was breaking myself down in order to, like, relive how to go th to have emotions and to do things um sober and so you know little by little like like three months and i ended up like going taking the subway to this church by myself i 
had my big book and I just like got on my knees and I just said, God, like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to drink ever again. Help me get through this. And, you know, for the first time in my life, like I fully surrendered and I fully believed deep down in my bones that I was an alcoholic and like things just, just got better from there. Um, my career got put back together. I was able to move back to New York. Um, and, and today, like through doing the step work, I'm able to realize like through my decisions and my behavior, like, am I doing things because of selfishness? Am I doing them because of greed? Um, is it pride? Like I have, a, I have this, I have this realization about where these character defects come into my life. Um, and I've actually been able to like have spirituality be a huge part of part of my life um, in ways that I haven't had before. And so today, I have a very clear peace of mind. Um, I'm free, and you know I'm able to like be of service and actually help the newcomer. Um, and so, you know, it's been a been a fantastic experience and i'm very grateful for my uh for my recovery and so if you're new just keep coming back do what your sponsor tells you to do and uh that's all you have to do for today so thanks for letting me share my name is tom and i am an alcoholic our main speaker tonight is sharon thank you tom hi i'm sharon i'm an alcoholic and thank you uh jeff and everybody gosh i enjoyed you carly and Alex very much. I love that affiliation word because that means if I'm affiliated with something, I'm making it my own, I'm being a member. I'm making it as my own organization. So I'm glad we don't have ads in. I went, came to New York City many years ago to work for an ad agency and oh, I love the city, but wore me out. I love visiting. I couldn't get in the subway, I had to take taxis everywhere. So I spent my whole paycheck um, on taxis. Plus I was drinking. Um, so maybe I got an hour of sleep. But anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to see some New York people, some people I sponsor. Uh, Pete's here, my partner. And I just love, I've been to your group. I love the energy and I love that. Um, I love that you have a lot of the traditions that I grew up with. I've been sober since August 20th, 1975. I've been a member of the Pacific group the first day I was sober. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know where I would have left, believe me. So yeah, I had a watch at one year. That was fun. They wouldn't let me out of this booth at the coffee shop. Like, if you went to smoke or do something, they went with you. Go with them. <laughs> it was fun. But I remember the um, the man at my very first meeting, uh, his name was Maurice Salatow. He was a Hollywood writer. He was great. He gave me my first big book, and I paid him back a quarter at a time. So that he came and he said, I had to come because you're the only newcomer that ever paid for that book one quarter at a time. <laughs> I felt like I was accomplished. And that was kind of the beginning. Um, you know, I grew up in Iowa, so I just kind of flew over it to come to you guys. I like uh, I like the Midwest, Fourth of July. We had a parade out here with all the kids and the bikes. And it was just really, it was very sweet. And uh, I have a very sweet life today. And it's cer certainly because I've had good sponsorship. Um, I remember being at the firecracker in Philly quite a few years ago with Peggy and Ava and I don't know who else came, but we had a really good time and the fireworks in the city and, and you know, we have a good time. I've, I've been to every international convention since I've been sober and I'm not going to miss one. I, I just am not. And uh, my first one was in New Orleans. Figure that one out. We were all there. <laughs> we, we ate a lot of food. We spent a lot of money. We ate a lot of ice cream and everything else. So we have a good time. So if you're new, Sophie, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, what made a difference for me when I was new was people were kind to me. And people hadn't been kind to me in a long time. And um, I I don't know. I drank since I was 12. I looked for the mothership since I was six. I never fit in. It wasn't enough. I have a great family. And I had a really wonderful upbringing and everything I needed to follow the yellow brick road and I had something more that was my spiritual solution which was king alcohol it quieted the mind it quieted the soul it stayed with me I could drive everybody home and I didn't have a driver's license yet 
so it was my it was my medicine um you know where's the mothership is what i kept looking for i'm in iowa and there's nothing wrong with iowa but it was just it was too dull for me and so i had to go many places and i did that i have a geographic taker and and you know i tried a lot of different things i'm just gonna let you know a few uh, i got kicked out of huntington beach on a commune where you can handle for a living i was trying to get somewhere but i ended up with a guy named bob dylan in aspen colorado i wasn't sure it was him but i think it was him i never asked him to see his driver's license but i ended up in uh Huntington Beach, and I got kicked out because I couldn't panhandle, because I just say, you don't want to give me any money, do you? <laughs> and they go, no. I said, would you buy me some wine? They said, sure. So they were upset with me because I drank their bong wine or whatever was going on. If you don't drink, you know, if, if you don't drink, you're boring. You know, you guys just drool on yourself and sit there. And so I got kicked out of a commune, and I got kicked out of art school and I got kicked out of uh, a commune up north which was organic where we had 50 head of organic sheep and bought land and we made maple syrup and I thought what am I doing here he said he'd take care of me what's wrong with these people I need taken care of so I uh, broke my mother's heart you know because I joined the carnival that was another solution I got quite the resume <laughs> and my very first job interview I sat there and went through all of those things and the, the gentleman, it was like, I think some restaurant or something, I was at the headquarters. The gentleman that was interviewing, they called in somebody, hey, come here, you gotta hear this. <laughs> and they bought lunch so they could hear my story. Of course, I never heard back from them. So I, I learned very early on, because I was, I was in service for a while, that you have to smile and fake it. You tell people how you are, even in the world today, they'll kind of, you meet somebody in the grocery store and you guys are picking out fruit or something and they ask how you are and you tell them it's like we scare people <laughs> and then they'll see you again at the grocery store and they'll turn and walk away very quickly but you know you're my people you I get you you get me um you know I I got a god here I grew up catholic which I gave my one figure peace sign to a god when I was about 18 years old and and now I sponsor a nun over about 42 years and uh, so I've made my amends <laughs> she's wonderful but I, I, you know, I landed in the Pacific Group on August 20th, and uh, I had already, I already found the French Quarter because I, the carnival didn't want me either because I was not nice with my mace and my tequila and my dog that bit people. So that got us closed down a few times. So, you know, I was kind of traveling along with my book, Be Here Now by Baba Ram Dass in my backpack. And, and uh, so when I hit the French Quarter of New Orleans, I was at home. <laughs> I was at home. It was wonderful. And. But you know, I burned out there too because my alcoholic friends, two, two of which are sober, there one was 84 and one was 85, they got sober. Two of my alcoholic friends said, we wouldn't even drink with you anymore. We didn't want to go to your bar where you were working and get a free drink from you. So that's pretty bad. It was, you know, it was kind of in the seedy part of the French Quarter, but you know, I loved it because I was just ready. I was ready to go. I was like, my dad and I had looked eye to eye for eight years. I broke his heart when he asked me, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? That question I hated and I told him what was wrong with me. I told him things that happened to me he didn't need to know. And my dad and I for eight years didn't look at each other. And if I went home for a rest, my mother would say, just stay out of your dad's way because you break his heart. Yeah, but my mother always said yes to me. And there I am, um, I can't get a job. French Quarter. I'm trying to get to Hawaii. I end up in LA where they have hours and I couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire me. Um, I was pretty sick. I had, you know, pancreatitis. My gallbladder was gone and, and I couldn't remember where the drinks went at that job and they said, please don't come back. <laughs> I was like, oh my. So I, I, you know, there were times I slept off of uh, Sweetser Avenue when there was a door open in an apartment complex. There were times where you were kind to me and I slept on your floor. There were, you know, I just had no friendly direction. And I went to Palm Springs to have one big party and I ended up uh, beaten up, thrown out of a car, broken neck, broken jaw. You know, I just, I ended up um, in the hospital for two weeks and I'll, nobody, nobody came over and said, you know, here you go, kid, Alcoholics Anonymous. It looks like you've got some real trouble now. Cause I knew I drank differently. I knew that. That's why I ran alone at the end. I ran alone. And I was in the hospital for two weeks, and some guy comes out and gets me after two weeks. I'm wired for sound. 
I can't talk for the first three months in AA, and that was a blessing. I had to learn to listen. I had to learn to listen. And so this guy came and got me, and I slept out on his couch, and he'd buy me cheap red wine. I'd stick a straw through the place where the tooth was, suck on the red wine, and I was done. I had a concussion. I was done. And I, August 20th, my sobriety date, grace came to me because I was, I think grace is there for all of us all the time. But the moment that something changed for me was I called my mother and asked for help because he said, you have to leave her depressing me. I had nowhere to go. And my mother, my mother said, Sharon, we can't help you anymore. Go to the Salvation Army. It was the first time she said no to me. So I looked down, there was a phone number and I called it. And I used to see this girl in Barney's Beanery where I first saw the big book. She had the big book in the bar. I didn't know what that is. Why? Maybe they teach you to drink. I didn't know. You know, nobody was like really, you know, caring much in the 70s, 70s about, you know, female alcoholics. I mean, we were kind of on our own. There was no 12-step house that would take me to nothing. I was a liability, I'm sure, the way I looked. And um, so I called Chris. And she said, I can't help you, but Suzanne can. And I dialed the phone number and asked for help. Well, it's a broken phone, you know. <laughs> she really had to figure out where I was. And she said, go sit on the steps. Don't drink anything. Don't smoke anything either. And I went, how does she know? You know, she, she just got my attention. I sat on the steps with my broken face, my broken life, my broken spirit, my broken Harachi shoes my bleach stained t-shirt and my backpack would be here now in it because I'm hanging on to something. And this car pulls up and had two beautiful women in it, got a bright car, bright and shiny. I couldn't even look at them. And I said, no, my inside said no. But I was so tired. They just lifted me up, put me in the back of the Volkswagen where I couldn't get out. And it was the perfect meeting for me that night. I don't even know. I'm in a church. I'm thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> I got to play the game. I need some place to stay. I'm not sure what's happening. I'm really tired. And the man at the podium hooked me. I think we all have a hook in us for somebody. We all have that hook. Maybe they don't know that, that you're watching them and they see something that lights them up inside. They see something, they hear something. They don't know who you are, but you said something like, don't leave five minutes before the miracle to somebody else you're talking to and they hear you they're hooked we don't know when the hook's going to come but what he what that man did what thinking is the minister said he always waited for the spaceship to land and say you can come home now and i went oh spaceship people i found my spaceship people i was really happy about it. and then maurice put the big book down alcoholics anonymous Second edition, he wrote it in it. He got my name out of me. He wrote it in pencil. It's still happening in pencil. And it's one of my most prized possessions. But I didn't know I was getting sober. I didn't know I got hooked. They just took me back and let the liquor store lights turn off. And I went upstairs. And then they came and got me the next day and put me on somebody's floor. And there I was. It's like throwing somebody on the merry ground and say, hang on. <laughs> That's what strong groups are all about. And I did hang on because I had nowhere to go. And I couldn't eat. I couldn't work. And you take me to the coffee shop. I'm so glad you guys do watches, anniversary watches. Because I think it's really something to shoot for. It's kind of fun. And and then, you know, you, you, you gave me so much love. And I didn't know why. Why are you giving me love? What what? Is, I had no idea. And I got a sponsor because they bugged me. So I got a sponsor. But, you know, really, I was just kind of thrown onto this merry-go-round. And I just hung on until I kind of came to, <laughs> I came to in the rooms and you guys were going, yeah, okay. You know, like you can make it. A man used to come by always to say, Sharon, you look tired. Why don't you stay, take your pack off and stay with us for 30 days. And they say, no, you look really tired. Why don't you stay with 60 days? You know, and he was kind to me and, and uh, somebody, I had to go back to court cause I had a detective. It was a whole victim thing. And I had to, and I had no way there, I had no clothes, and, and his wife had given me some clothes. And one night I was keeping score, who gave me clothes, who gave me a $20 bill, who did this, who gave me rides, you know, who bought me you know, milkshakes so I could eat. And I was, he saw what I was doing, and he said, Sharon, put that list away. Put that list away. He said, someday you're gonna have a car, a license registration, and insurance, all in the same name. <laughs> and then he said, you know, you're going to be able to put a $20 bill 
bill in that girl's purse as she goes to the bathroom because she knows she needs it. Someday, you're going to have clothes in a cleaner bag in the trunk of your car. So after the meeting, you take her out and you open the trunk and you hand her some clothes in the cleaner bag. I thought, how does he know that? That was his wife. That was his wife. Neither one of Chuck and Susie aren't here anymore, but I like to tell the story because it's my step one. I, um, one night I had nowhere to stay. I guess they fell off. I fell off the chart. Who's watching her this week or where she's sleeping this week. And it was a place outside of uh, Santa Monica Boulevard where the Orange Julius went. And there was a place in the back of this house that had booze after hours. And I knew it hadn't. And so when they took me after the Saturday night meeting, I gave them the address or told them where to turn or but that was, they got it. And they, they pulled up in front of this place and um, Susie could see what was going on in the lights of the car. And uh, she said, when you walked in there, I thought we're never gonna see her again. We're never gonna see her again. I must've had maybe, I don't know, 32, 40 days. I'm not even sure. And I laid in that cot that night and I heard everybody, if you got there early enough, you got a place to sleep. I used to go there after hours. I heard everybody hitting on the vodka in the freezer. I heard all of the booze going on. And I laid there on that cot and I said the serenity prayer. And I didn't get up and hit on the booze that night. I didn't do it. It was something that I didn't expect. Um, you know, it says we find a higher power here. I'm acquiring a higher power every day. I'm making it my own. I'm making it my own. And I uh, had a hard time with that in the beginning. But you have a sponsor, they're going to push you through the steps. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean we're going to take a third step on our knees in the broad daylight? And um, so we did. We, we, we did. Right at her house. Her kids are home. We're on our knees. I'm going, uh, and she said, you know, here's the book. We're going to read it out of the book. And I could hardly read it, but I did. And then she just loved me she picked me up almost she was tiny but she was just like so excited to have done this third step with me and this is how my brain was it was so rattled my brain said oh my god I, I like how she's feeling next to me holding me I must be gay and so she said you know Sharon let's not make any major decisions in your first year <laughs> it's like she didn't want to hear that but that was that was how out of it I was it's like it was like a computer wires all over the floor and you just spark them every once in a while. But the best thing I did was um, finally finish my fourth in my fourth step and take that inventory with my sponsor on Venice Beach. It was like a week before my one year birthday because it seemed to me not true that they wanted you to be at least through step five to take your birthday cake at the Pacific Group. You know, who's this guy Clancy? I got, I got Ginny as a sponsor five years. I've got... Janet for five years we, you know we walked through a lot of lights the first 10 years and then and then it kind of hit the fan it's hit the fan from time to time and and when it hit the fan I, I, I had no friendly direction again and I was worried I had a baby um, my husband had the newcomer in the room nobody got custody that wasn't much fun and um, Clancy was the only guy there and I said I, I had to stop at his house I'm crying I've got my baby in a stroller and Jenny gets off the plane with 21 days, my sponsor, off 21 years, no, 21 days, and she's feeling bad, and I'm crying, and I've got my baby, and I knock at his door, and he said, we'll try, <laughs> we'll try, so from that point on, Clancy tried to sponsor me pretty darn well until his death a few years ago, and um, the man was good for me through a lot of the things I had to go through because I could hear him, and Chuck used to say, you know, see till you hear you see till you see and hear till you hear and that's the truth you know I, I I know that I'm that person I know my defects of character very well now you know and I know I have to change continually change it's not something that I just do once it's those defects you know I, I have an evil twin <laughs> I, I know she bugs me a lot of times I was really pissed off one morning and she she said you know it was after my husband I was within 24 years, a man named Casey died. We'd had a beautiful memorial with, you know, Scottish bagpipes at this beautiful golf course. He was a big golfer. And, you know, it was just the most beautiful thing. And I get woken up by my evil twin the next morning. And my evil twin said, they, you know, you made people stand in the sun to sign that book. How come you didn't have so-and-so talk? He's one of his best golfing friends. 
And it went on and on and on. I thought, oh man, my mind has taken away all of this beautiful grief and love I've got to have right now. So I thought, okay, we're, we're going to take her for a ride. That's what I did. I made her a tuna fish sandwich. I buckled her up in the car. I drove to Playa del Rey. I put the tuna fish sandwich on a bus stop. I unbuckled her. I said, thanks for being in my life. You helped me with defiance and everything I needed to survive. I don't need you to survive anymore. I, I don't survive. I want to live. So I left her at the bus stop. And she makes her way home every now and then, that's for sure. <laughs> the defects do come back. But, you know, I have that kind of, uh, that's why I sponsor so many women. I love it. God was skin on for me. I can see the change. I can share experience. I can learn from their experience. It's such a beautiful exchange. And I never knew that because I'm a loner. I'm a lone wolf. That's what I was at the end like, Bill. I was the lone wolf. And I didn't need anybody or anything. And I was one step away from standing in front of the bus. And my mother said, no. I made a call, moment of grace. I got pulled through the window, the window shut. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll be forever grateful for me not even wanting it, not even knowing it. But but it was the time that God said, it's time, kid. This is it. And I, I'm so grateful for that. And, and, you know, I started with this inventory and they had to make amends to everybody. And I had to go back to New Orleans at five years and make amends. And people didn't recognize me. <laughs> Who are you standing in front of me? If nothing else, just how you clean up around here, you know, it really, it really is effective. And um, I, uh, at one year I went home and I made my amends to my mom and my sister and my brother. And my older sister never really accepted my, my um, amends. And I kept trying. I mean, she said, no, no, we're fine. And right now she's in a very nice, very expensive, she called it her, uh, it's a business trip but she dragged herself into Korsakoff syndrome. So this is my brilliant Mensa older sister, full ride at Barnard College, NYU, master's degree. This is what happened to her later in life. So um, I see why she didn't make my amends. I see why she didn't come to anything I ever had up in California, even my husband's memorial. She didn't want to come because of AA. I understand that now, but I didn't then. She's sweet as pie to me now, and I'm the sweetest pie to her, but all of that's gone. All of that's gone. She thinks she's on one big business trip, and that's fine. She can think that. But God bless us all that we have, the, you know, we're the lucky ones. Norm Alpe used to talk about that. If anybody knows Norm Alpe, by seconds and inches, we're here by seconds and inches. Think about it. How many times you passed out and rolled over and instead of choking on your vomit, it went on the pillow? How many times did you wake up and you're driving in a blackout? There's a pole, you know, how many times? Did I get in cars with people I didn't know and not knowing what was going to happen and how I got into that? How many times? We are here. We're saved to save. And I really believe that. So my dad, my dad, I got the time. Um, my dad, um, I have the trusty right here. <laughs> 2140. I'm in. So I got about eight minutes. Um, my dad uh, made the advance and he said he just always wanted me to be happy. That was it. So my sponsor said, go home happy. Call home happy. Go visit him once a year. And, um, you know, I gave him a son, a grandson, and I named after his father because I never got to make amends to my grandpa, Wesley, who I loved, but I couldn't get off the bar still walk two blocks to the hospital. Two blocks. I got more forgiveness to, to come right now. I did another fifth step. I'm into my defects, and I'm going to make some amends because things make you change in life. <laughs> they kind of you know, it's my, the, the rocks that I've been carrying get really, really gone sometimes. And that's when I love seeing somebody walk in and treating them with kindness. And nothing better than a handshake, a hug, remembering their name, making eye contact. Nothing better. And if I can just do that, at, you know, at one meeting, I'm helping. You know, one meeting, one night. Every night, find somebody. So my dad, um, I got Jenny, and Jenny said, no, it's not enough. <laughs> Why is not enough? You owe your dad money. I said, I do. So we started making payments. And my dad accepted my payment terms, and he had been out walking me down the aisle, boy, this girl, the first husband on a, a campus. And my dad bought the book, read the book, ran a calculator tape, and put it on page 89. I think it's most alcoholics of money. He was ready for me. <laughs> he was ready for me. 
So I don't know, maybe three years later I called and he had the total. He was ready. So uh, my sponsor laughed because I said, it's too high. And she laughed and she said, are you willing to grow through this with your dad? And I like to think of that because am I willing to have full forgiveness for something going on that I need to work on? Am I willing to look at myself and tell on myself? Am I willing to hit my knees and say, okay, God, my friend, I need help here. You know, and I have a sponsor that I run it through, God and skin on. But my, um, my dad's, he accepted payment terms and she told me to write a note about my, my life because he's got all these successful children. My brother's a PhD, you know, fun. There's me. So I did. I wrote my dad about jail panel. I was like going on jail panels. But he got a check and a note consistently for three and three quarter years, four and three quarter years, almost five, almost five years, best I can figure. And he called me day after Christmas. He said, Merry Christmas, daughter. I don't want your money anymore. He gave me freedom from that. But don't stop sending me your notes. And it was like, oh, I get it. Forgiveness is forgiving. It's forgiving. And um, my dad and I had the root beer story. My dad and I had spent all day in town, in town, I call it town, um, picking up parts for his, he had a construction business. And then we were going back. We said, hey, girl, do you want a root beer? There's a scan. I said, love one, dad. So we got our root beer and sat under a shade tree in Iowa on a beautiful night as the, you know, the fireflies are coming up and the sky is getting that beautiful color. And there's just a nice breeze on this picnic table. If you would have been getting your root beer, you just would have looked over and go, there's a dad and a daughter having a chat. It was that easy. And if you would have looked underneath the picnic table, my legs were swinging like a little six-year-old girl. The innocence came back. I had no idea. So sponsors want one more thing from you, do it. <laughs> they have a little bit of vision. And I just stay in it and stay in it and stay in it. So my life is very different today. I worked, I just finished, well, on, on the 20th of July, I'll finish 33 years of working in the legal world. <laughs> yes, I'm still saying, <laughs> barely. But, and, and a couple years ago in the pandemic, I met a new partner and I was widowed nine years. What? And this guy came in my life and I went, hmm. And so we've been together two years. And, you know, he moved out from Chicago and he's teaching the first grade because he got fired from Uber Eats. That's a whole story. <laughs> so, you know, you got to get in the flow because you don't know, you know. And, and there's a beaver dam over here. The flow's over there because you get to make ripples. You know, that the whole thing about um, my husband leaving me and I had to walk through it with dignity and grace because my sponsor <clears throat> insisted on that. Clancy wouldn't let me throw the hot coffee on them that night because they seemed too happy. It's date night, Saturday night, she's pregnant. Now they're gonna get married. And uh, he wouldn't let me throw the hot coffee because he said, you're gonna walk through this with dignity and grace. And I wasn't, I wouldn't have heard him. I would've said, I want revenge. I'm 10 years sober. You guys all knew this was happening. Nobody told me I'm betrayed. You know, I have my list, the victim, right? But he said, so you can be an example to all this. God, I heard him. And when I'm an example of alcoholics and not, it's because of what's been given to me that I can give to others. Wow. Wow. Really. So I, uh, I left him alone. And when he left her, <laughs> after the baby was born, she and I raised those kids together. And we did softball. We did a lot of things like that. There were a lot of things for the kids to come around. The volleyball conventions. My son loved to go order pizza in the room and meet all the other alcoholic kids that are like, you know, orphan because we were all at the big conference downstairs and watch movies and jump in the pool. My son is not an alcoholic. He's 38 years old. He's going to have his first photography exhibit in Manhattan Beach. He works for the, what his passion is, which is film. And he's become quite a beautiful man. And he's had to walk through some stuff. Walk through some stuff. But I've had so much support here, and I am a product of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a product of a loving God that said, you're not going yet, kid. you got more to do, and that's my purpose. I'm going into a whole nother career <laughs> where I get to do what I love. I get to do what I love. It's not quite figured out yet, but they're making a salary for me. So I get to be creative and do what I love, and that's going to be um, a whole new chapter, you know, like my new relationship, like my new people I sponsor. It's a whole new chapter. And it's it's written on the heart. You know, there's that book, Tattoos on the Heart. The 
you know, priest that started Homeboy in L.A. because of the riots. Talk about a ripple. That's how it started. <laughs> so out of everything kind of that doesn't seem good, if I act right and I say my prayers and I wake up sober and grateful, I try to help others answer the phone. 2018 was not my year. You know, it was a tough year, and uh, I uh, was ready to jump off the balcony, and I thought, no, I can't do that because I'll just get maimed and I'll lay in the hospital and all those babies will come up and I can't talk and they'll just tell me about their boyfriends and you know their pedicure they have or you know something and I'll just be Ugh. so I called my sponsor and he said I couldn't find a job because I was outside of one firm going to another and he said to me he said Sharon it's because you're defiant and I thought that's right I forgot <laughs> I forgot that's my major, my major survival skill is survive, survival skill is defiance and self-reliance because it goes hand in hand. Okay, I'm a, I have a few seconds left. I want to let you know the effects of the wind. Um, you know, when my husband was dying and we were sitting there and he, he had chemo treatment and he said, look at the, look at, look outside Sharon, you see the wind and I'm complaining about the job. I'm complaining, you know, he's going to treatments, I'm complaining. And he said, Sharon, do you, see, do you see the wind? And I said, yeah, I see the wind. It's blowing a lot of stuff and on and on. And he said, no, do you see? And he, and he really emphasized the word see, see the effects of the wind. And I sat for a minute, I'm like grasshopper sensei, I went, oh my God, he's trying to tell me something here. And I thought, no, I don't see the wind with my eyes. He said, that's right. I don't see God in this cancer. I don't see God in what's happening to me. I want to be around. But what I want to have is a good, grateful day. So much like the wind, you just see the effects. What I do every day is when I walk out the door, I look for the effects of God. So I hope you have something that you got from tonight. I love you all. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for the 4th of July. Freedom, freedom, right? It's, you know, it's what it is. So uh, we have a quality of life that's amazing. If you stay in the middle of alcoholics, and help others. Thank you so much.